Good morning again. Um, we, are, we have, over the last couple of weeks, have been going through a series called Tough Questions. Um, and the idea behind Tough Questions has been twofold. We've been wanting to make believers into thinkers and thinkers into believers. And what I mean by that is for those of you who are Christian, you have a genuine relationship with the Lord. There's this, uh, you know Him, you're saved. If you die today, you're going to be with Him in heaven. You have this, gen- as I said, genuine relationship with Him. We we wanted to help you come to a point in where you're able to not only um, say, man, I believe in Jesus because once I've met him, but rather give an account of your faith on, on some solid reasons behind why what we believe is true. So when the family member or the colleague or the friend comes along and asks you a question about your faith, first prize would be that you'd be able to give an answer but at the very least that you'd be confident knowing that our faith has logic behind it, that there's reason behind what we believe, and you're able to say to them, man, I don't know the answer, but I'm going to find it, and let's continue this conversation on next time. But we also want to acknowledge that there's some of you that are thinkers, and you've had uh, questions about the Christian faith. You've gone to family members, you've gone to friends, you've gone to others that you know who are Christian. You've asked them these tough questions, and they've just gone to, oh man, don't worry about that kind of stuff. Just believe, just believe. And for you, that just doesn't sit right. And so we wanted to show you that there's a rationale behind what we believe. There's logic to our faith. There's, it's not just pie-in-the-sky type, airy-fairy type stuff. There's real reasoning and logic behind what we believe. And so that's our aim. And we've started off the series three weeks ago. We looked at the first question, which was, um, how can we believe in a, a God that we cannot see, hear, or touch? Um, we then moved on, does science and evolution contradict Christianity? And then last week, we looked at a real important one, and that was, is the Bible trustworthy? Isn't, is the Bible not full of contradictions and mistakes? Why would we trust it? And that was an extremely important one. If you missed it last week, I would really encourage that you go onto our Facebook page or you go onto our website or onto SoundCloud or however tech-savvy you are and find that sermon. Give it a listen to. It's really, really important. Matt last week argued that there is, at the very least, if you are a skeptic, a non-Christian, at the very least, you have to come to the conclusion, especially after listening to that sermon, that this word is not fictitious, it's not just something that's made up, but rather what it is, is something that is reliable, it's something that's trustworthy, you have at very least a historical, reliable, a valid evidence here of what actually happened. We as Christians believe it's an inspired word of God. It's, it's true, but it's also inspired by God. But at the very least, after hearing that sermon, you can come to the conclusion that this is historic, uh, historically trustworthy in what it says and what it has to say. So if you've missed that, go and listen to it. The reason why it's so important is because from this week onwards, what you're going to notice is that a large part of what we use as our primary source for uh, 
answering the questions is going to come from the Word. You will notice in the first two weeks, our main arguments weren't from the Word of God. I mean, we used it, but it wasn't there as our primary source because we hadn't argued for the validity of it yet. Does this make sense? Now that we've argued for the validity of the Word, a large part of what we're going to be arguing and, and uh, um, talking and answering from is the Word of God. So if you've missed that one, you need to go and um, check it out. But uh, our first question that we're going to be answering, the, well, the, not the first question, the question that we're going to be uh, tackling this morning is, we know Jesus was a good man, but why try and make him the Son of God too? So the argument against Jesus goes something along this line. It's not on the slider behind me, but it says this, so just listen. It says, he was a man known for his unusual wisdom which he spent his lifetime trying to instill in anyone who would listen. His efforts were met with great resistance as he pushed against the accepted religious beliefs and authorities of his day. But gradually, against the odds, his teaching caught on, and more and more people were changed by his words and became his disciples. In time, this, uh, his circle of followers grew into a movement, and after his death, the movement became a major world religion. Over time, however, some of his followers, zealous to honor him in the greatest way possible, began to transform what he had taught in something quite different. The teacher had claimed to be just that, a spiritual guide a unique, uh, with unique insights and wisdom. But they turned him into a savior and more than that, a divine figure who would be worshipped. Ideas that were completely contrary to what he taught. Is that an accurate account? Yes, it is but not of Jesus, but of a guy named Sahitra Gautama, which is also probably better known as Buddha. Buddha lived about 500 years uh, before uh, Jesus uh, was born. And so uh, he was a man who did not in any way teach the fact that he was divine. Um, he did not uh, f follow that at all. In fact, some even argue that he was a good chance he was an atheist. At the very least, an agnostic. He believed that there was a God, but you could never really know him personally. And uh, his focus on his teachings were never about trying to discuss the existence of God. But in fact, were just spiritual practices. But yet, over after his death... After a period of time, his followers started, about, uh, uh, started to make him more and more into someone who was divine. And today we have Buddhists that worship him as Buddha. The question then begs, is this something that happened to Christ? Was Jesus just a good man that, had, uh, that was a follower and, and then over a period of time people started to worship him? Something that's similar that happened to Buddha. Uh, and the idea of Jesus being a good man is not new at all. Um, there's a guy named uh, Thomas Jefferson. He was the uh, third U.S. president. He is uh, notorious for uh, cutting out parts of the New Testament that refer to Christ's divinity and his miracles. And he would write to his mate and he would say to him that this was the best account of Jesus' teaching. And he says this, he says, the most sublime, this is the most sublime and benevolent code of morals which uh, has, ever, uh, has ever been. And so that's what people think today. Jesus taught great morals, great wisdom, and, and in over a period of time, what happened was people started to think that he was something else. They just started to add to it that he was the savior of all humanity. And it kind of digressed away from the simple teaching of just love thy neighbor. 
So it's no wonder why non-Christians think this. Other religions do as well. Buddhists would argue that Jesus is just another type of Buddha just for the West. Islam will argue that Jesus was a prophet of Allah and he would never ever say that he was divine. In fact, one day when we die and we stand before Allah, he will tell us, Jesus himself will tell us we were wrong. Jews, most Jews would argue that Jesus was a good teacher, a good moral man, but in no way ever was he the Messiah, the Son of God. And so we have this tension where people just say, man, he was good. You guys just made him into something much more than he was. And so we find ourselves um, in a common culture today where people say he was good. And over a period of time, what happened is that he became a more than that. This was made probably most popular by Dan Brown. I know we mentioned him last week. Dan Brown's book, The Divinity Code, made this popular. That in the third century at the Council of Nicaea, um, what happened was people then schemed and came together and they decided that they were going to make Jesus more than he was. Unfortunately for Dan and the rest of the boys is that this has very, very, has no historical evidence for it. Well, actually, best is... Uh, Historical scholarships would say that that is just not the case. And this guy named, and I've got this will be the first point, guy named Dr. Larry Hotadu, a New Testament scholar um, from the U- University of Edinburgh. He pretty much says that there was suddenly in history a big bang of explosion of devotion for Jesus. So there was nothing, and then all of a sudden, there was this massive explosion of people that revered Jesus, that worshipped him, that devoted their life to him. It wasn't something that just took a long period of time to develop. To understand this point probably better is that we need to uh, just tackle a little remind ourselves a little bit of what happened last week, that uh, the New Testament was probably all completed and written by between the age, the age, the age, the date of AD 50 and 100, no more than that, AD 50 and 100. That means all the New Testament books were finished between, uh, were written between uh, 20 years to, uh, 20 years to 70 years after Jesus' death. They were all complete. That's a couple of hundred years before the, um, the Council of Nicaea. Hundreds of years before that happened. The New Testament books were already written. One of the letters that Paul writes in, in as the, as 1 Corinthians, he, in, in that he writes, it's about 17, sorry, it's about 17 years after Jesus' death, he writes uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, he puts together a creed as he writes to them. 17 years after Jesus' death, Paul writes a creed, which is an established theology put down, which often would be sung. They had already had that 17 years after Jesus' death. On top of that, he was writing to an established church. So this was 17 years after Jesus' death. That is basically the beginning of when there was a devotion to Jesus and worship. Take, put that in contrast to a Buddha, we think that the earliest writings is roughly about 300 years after his death. I say roughly because we don't even, we're not even sure in what century he died in. So we, we roughly 300 years. But here we have a defined creed in an established church. But this explosion of devotion, if you will, to, to, to Christ wasn't just something that happened in Jerusalem. 
This explosion that Dr. Larry is talking about wasn't just something in one little city. Rather, it was a mass amount. It was this extremely widespread of expanse of the gospel from all the way in the east to Jerusalem, all the way to the west in Rome. And in between them, they had cities like um, Thessalonica, Philippi, uh, Colossae, Ephesus, which is modern-day Turkey, had established churches with people that worshipped Jesus as the Son of God. It wasn't just something that took over time. It was from the immediate beginning after Jesus' death, we have that these people thought that Jesus was God. We, we, we're able to even look into what these authors wrote to these churches to see what they believe. And the first is that they refer to Jesus um, as the Christ. And now, for some of you, you need to realize that when we refer to Jesus as Christ, Jesus Christ, Christ is not his surname. It's not his last name. I know that might just, we might just assume that, but it's really, it's not his last name. Rather, there's a meaning behind it. The Hebrew word for Christ is Messiah, which has the a title which means anointed one. And so the Greek translation of that title is the word Christ. Now, that title appears over 500 times in the New Testament. It's, it's rapid. There's large amounts of this title that appears. Now, again, that still might not argue what they believe for Jesus. So what does this mean? Well, the anointed, the, the, it was used to be anointed in the Old Testament, was to be used for two offices, to be priest and to be king. If you're a priest or a king, you would be anointed. So when the NT write, um, the New Testament writers say that Jesus was the Christ, what they're saying is that Jesus was the preeminent priest and he was the preeminent king. He's, they're saying that as a priest makes you righteous, so Christ is going to come along and he's going to make the whole world righteous. As, as a king comes and establishes peace and rule, so there's going to be this Christ that's going to come along and his name's Jesus and he's going to establish a worldwide peace and a worldwide rule. Um, they, not, they don't just think this man is a good man. They think he's the preeminent priest and king that was promised to Israel and it's fulfilled in Jesus. At the very, very, very least, New Testament believers believe that this Jesus was a priest that was going to establish worldwide righteousness and worldwide peace. Isn't that incredible? And so it wasn't just this idea of man. He was a good man. They saw him more than that. Actually, in fact, what we see in the New Testament is that the first believers thought that he was God and the Son of God. It only came much later at the end of the New Testament era that people start to think it was the other way around. What we, what we see is at the, in John, uh, John 1, 2.22, John has to deal with people that say, ah, we followers of Christ, we just don't think he's God. And John, being an apostle, goes hard after it. He says his people are false. They're wrong. They're trying to lead us astray. Don't listen to them. It was first that people thought he was God. And then later people started to say he was a good man. Not the other way around. Also when we see in these writings, we see what um, the authors said about Jesus. They gave him the incredible titles. 
have for Jesus. They say, they call him, Jesus was the son of God. They say, um, Jesus was savior. They say he was Lord. He say he was God. And I put Lord again there just to show that all the authors, besides, I don't have Jude up here because I couldn't fit it in. But Jude uh, 1 and uh, 1 verse 4 shows that they call him Lord. These most amazing titles. Next slide there, uh, guys. And what we have is that the NT writers also gave him the most divine honors. They told the people to do stuff that only you can do for, uh, for God. They told him to believe in him and trust him. They told him to pray to him. And they told him to worship him. The key point that I'm trying to get across this morning is there was never a point where the early community of church thought, man, this guy is just a good guy. He's not God. They definitely, from the beginning, thought he was God. So you might say, and the argument often goes, is, man, Joe, that sounds great, bro. But maybe these guys thought he was God, and after Jesus' death, they worshipped him and praised him. Maybe it was a simple, simply a colossal mistake on their behalf. Maybe Jesus didn't teach this. They just, they just missed out. They didn't understand, and they've gone on. Did Jesus himself think that he was God? And that's a, that's a great question. The, but the difficulty behind it comes is that a lot of people are skeptical about the Gospels. They don't know if the Gospels fairly reflect what Jesus said. And so they go, well, what he says there about him being God, that could be changed. Again, I encourage you to listen to last week's sermon to instill in yourself confidence that this, at the very least, is a historically accurate book. But what there is a process, there's a bunch of liberal scholars uh, that are trying to find the so-called really real historical Jesus, how they've, they've put together a bunch of tests and criteria that will come to a place where even them as being really liberal would go, man, Jesus actually said these words. And one of the things that they do is they say, well, if Jesus said stuff about himself, but the other NT writers don't use the same words or phrases, then it must have been Jesus because they wouldn't have been able to. Generally, when people fake stuff, they use the same words that they use. So if Jesus said something that they didn't use about him, there's a good chance Jesus said that. Does that make sense? Well, anyway, it's one of the, one of the ones that uh, they use. And one of the words that we find, one of the phrases that we find that Jesus uses often that the NT writers don't really is the word son of man. Son of man. Jesus uses 82 times in the four Gospels. It's only found in the rest, the entire rest of the New Testament. It's only found between three to four times in the New Testament. So it's, this is one of those that they go, great, this must be something that Jesus has said by himself. The reason why the other NT writers probably didn't use it often was because they wrote to a lot of Gentile churches, or the churches were mixed with Gentiles, and the Gentiles wouldn't have understood this. So even us as modern day readers, when we read this ourselves, what often, when we read that Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, we often think, and we'd be wrong to assume so, that Jesus is referring to his humanity, that he is just a man. And so, what, as I said really, we have to understand an Old Testament background in order to get what Jesus is profoundly saying here. 
And what Jesus is saying is um, he's referring to a a prophecy in the book of Daniel, Old Testament book of Daniel, where Daniel says that the Son of Man, uh, like one like the Son of Man was going to be presented to the Ancient of Days, which is referring to God. And this person would have sovereign rule and would be worshipped by all people over all time. All nations and tongues would worship this Son of Man. And only in Scripture does God get worshipped. Only is He meant to be worshipped. So here when Jesus is making reference to this man, He is saying that He is going to be worshipped. He is going to be a ruler of the whole world, including all people, all times, and all nations are going to worship Him. At the very least, that is what Jesus is saying when He calls Himself the Son of Man. Man, it's this massive thing. He's calling himself God. So we see Jesus um, link these two things in Mark 4. I'm sorry, Mark 14. Um, It's the trial. Jesus is in during the trial. The crucifixion is about to happen. Um, They falsely arrested him. They bring him along, and the high priest and the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees are firing questions at him as they're angry with him. They want to, they want to kill him. And uh, he, he makes this, uh, the high priest asks him this question in, in verse 61 of Mark 14. He says, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? Which Jesus replies to, he says, I am, I am. And I'm going to just stop there quickly. When Jesus says, I am here, he's been emphatic. He's actually going, I, I am. We just translated that in Greek because it makes no sense in English. But he's going, I, I am. He is referring here to when Moses is standing at the burning bush and God says to him, go and tell Pharaoh to let people go. Go tell Israel I'm taking them out. And he goes, well, that's great, but they're going to ask me who sent me. And and what does God respond? He goes, I am who I am is my name. And so when Jesus stops here and goes, I am, or I, I am, they immediately know that he's saying, I am God. But he, he goes on even more to say that, and he goes, and you will see the Son of Man seated in the, high, the place of power at God's right hand and coming on the, uh, the clouds of heaven. When Jesus couples the words son of man and uh, coming on the clouds of heaven, he's undeniably linking himself to what Daniel says in Daniel uh, 7 verse 13 where it says, I saw someone like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus is undeniably here saying, man, I am God. I am the one that's going to rule sovereignly. I am to be worshipped for all times by all people across this world. I am him. And we, and we can just see by the response of the high priests and the people. He tears his clothes. That's a sign of when people blasphemed. He would have to tear his clothes. He's outraged. He's in horror. And he says, why do we need another witness? You have all heard his blasphemy. What is your verdict? And guilty they cried he deserves to die if jesus was just calling saying that he was just a man man they've really misunderstood him they would have never got that response out of him of them like that he is undeniably saying that he's god and i have so much more that we can discuss here but 
man, by Jesus making him central, the, the kingdom of God. Jesus uses parables where he is the central figure and claims to be God. We just don't have time to tackle that this morning. What I want to do is I've got some scripture references up for you here. I, I, w- I, was, I was going to have them up on the screen but, to follow, but it's just going to take... It was going to take too much time. So I'm just going to read them for you, and you can look them up at some other point. But I want you to hear here what the opponents think about Jesus, what they say here when interacting with Jesus. It says here, Jesus, uh, no, they say, yeah, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father and making himself equal with God. They wanted to kill him as a result of that. That's John 5, verses 16 to 18. John 8, verses 56 to 59, says, yeah, uh, Jesus speaking, yeah, he says, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and, it was, and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 and you, and you have seen Abraham. Jesus referring to his eternity, by the way. Eternal nature. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. There's that statement again. I, I am. So they picked up stones to throw it at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. The next one, John 10, 30, uh, 30 to 33, says, I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? They answered him, It is not for the good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Every single occasion that Jesus claimed himself to be God, everyone in the audience understood who, what he was saying. No mistake. And you know what blows me away? is if there was a mistake and they picked up stones to stone him, Jesus goes, here is no point in which he tries to defend himself. He never ever sits back and goes, whoa, 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 whoa. What are you guys doing? Like, why have you picked up? What, whoa, whoa, what, what do you think you do? Why do you want to stone me? Oh, because you called yourself God. Oh, whoa, whoa. No, 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 that's not what I meant. Come on, guys, this is what He never ever tries to explain it. In fact, he reinforces it. To the fact that they go and kill him on a cross. He, without a doubt, Jesus thought he was the Son of God. Now we find ourselves in a bit of a dilemma spiritually. When we see that the disciples thought Jesus was the Son of God, and we see Jesus himself thought he was the Son of God, we have two options. We either think that Jesus was the Son of God and we believe him, or we think this is a, not a good man, but rather he's a bad teacher and a false prophet. There's no ways that we can say that Jesus is still a great guy and a good teacher for teaching stuff that was false. That would lead people astray for thousands of years to believe something that was not true. Who'd, families would be broken up because some people would believe in him and others would say, would you have to leave my family? That is not a good man. C.S. Lewis puts it like this. He's one of his most memorable comments. He says, A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus would, said would not be a, mo- a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else he is a madman or something else. 
We can't just rest on the fact that Jesus was a good man and that's it. You have to decide. You have to make your choice. But you're going, okay, Joe, so the disciples thought he was the Son of God and Jesus thought he was the Son of God, but how can we know that his claims were true? <laughs> I mean, that's important, right? And it's something that we need to be able to figure out. Well, one of the best ways in for us to do this is to be able to figure out what convinced the disciples that Jesus was the Son of God. And ironically, it starts off with the historical fact that is barely dis uh, uh, disputed at all is that Jesus, with Jesus' death. Um, there's a guy named John uh, Dominic Crisson, I think I pronounced it right, uh, co-founder of the Nitros Jesus Seminar. These are a bunch of scholars that promote highly skeptical views of Jesus. I would go so far to say that they're not Christian. They might even say themselves that they are not. And yet, here is this guy that is the co-founder of the seminar, and he goes, Jesus' death by execution under Pontius Pilate is as sure as anything historical can be. But what makes this historical certainty of Jesus' death ironic is that initially, People thought that the death of Christ, back when Jesus first died, they thought that that proved that Jesus was not the Messiah. You see, from a Jewish perspective, you've got to understand that they thought because Jesus died on the cross, he was cursed by God. There's this uh, verse in Deuteronomy 21 verse uh, 23 that says, anyone who is hung on a tree, or wood for this case, is under God's curse. So for Jewish uh, Jewish people, Jesus' followers, man, they, they see this Jesus has died. And they think, we've just missed it. This guy isn't what he said he was. They, there's this, they had this under, traditional understanding that the Messiah was going to come and he was going to conquer Rome. He was going to liberate the Israelites from Rome. He was going to set them free from the oppression. But instead of liberating them from Rome, Jesus just becomes one of the casualties of Rome and gets killed by Romans. You can understand why they're so deflated when Jesus dies. Not only have they lost a friend, but everything that they believed in him has now gone. So what changes their mind? How do they come from being deflated to the what would essentially change the world? Simply, it is the resurrection of Jesus. Man, friends and followers and family members of Jesus were convinced that Jesus rose again from the dead. We sung it this morning a number of times, actually. Just a great coincidence. I hadn't spoken to Dane about it. But we, we, here we have this, they were confident that Jesus rose again. They were now aware that Jesus didn't die on the cross because he was cursed by God, but rather Jesus died on the cross for the, their curse. Their curse, understand, our curse, understand that Jesus had not come to die to liberate Israel, the ancient Israel from Roman oppression, but rather what he had come to do was liberate the entire world for all time from the slavery and curse of sin. Far greater of a work that he did as a result of dying on the cross than just liberating people in one period from Rome. And they are so convinced of it that they go and change the world. Paul puts it like this in Galatians 3 verse 13. When he was hung on the cross, he took, sorry, it's his tool there. He took upon himself the curse of our wrongdoing. Christianity didn't begin with a group of people that believe once Jesus died, tried to remember everything that he said 
and try and go forward from there. It began with the people seeing the resurrected Savior and moving on. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, the Christian movement would have ended. It would have happened. But again, the skeptic in us questions whether the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. I mean, it's, uh, we can understand this why. The, the, the cross, Jesus dying, man, it's barely disputed. It just, it's, there's a lot of historical fact, man, that's easy to believe. But the fact that he rose again from the dead, that's when the skeptic comes out. And, and so we, uh, we start to argue. And so here are three facts, and there's a lot more that we could argue, but it's, again, for time. Three facts that give us sufficient evidence that conclude that the resurrection happened as an actual historical fit. First one, you'd be surprised, is there's no reasonable doubt, well, there's no reasonable historian that denies that Jesus died on the, uh, the Roman cross. Islam would teach you that Jesus uh, was replaced by someone else. It wasn't him that died on the cross. Um, we, I don't have time to rebuttal that argument, besides the fact you just need to read the character of this person who's been murdered, and you would see that this could only be the Son of God that responds that way. Some people say he didn't die. He survived it. And that's how he appeared three days later with no marks or scars on his body. But he, he was, here he is, all right? He didn't die. But the fact is that there is no historical fact to back that up. There's tons of evidence that proves that Jesus died, but everything else is just assumption. And the reason why that's important towards the resurrection is Jesus needed to die in order there to be a resurrection. All right, does that make sense? We couldn't just claim something else. And so there is, there's no historical fact. Everything else that says that Jesus didn't die, it's just they are burdened um, with the need to prove it, and they just can't. It's all just assumption. The second one is the tomb in which Jesus' body had been buried was found empty. That's important. <laughs> but there's going to be a number of little subpoints here. The first one is that the tomb that they used was Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. Now, Joseph of Arimathea was a member of the Sanhedrin, which, if you don't know, is the political party of the day, but also really mixed with the religious party. They are very religious and political. This party, the Sanhedrin, this group of people, they were the ones that made sure Jesus died. So why in the world, if the disciples were making all of this stuff up, just simply some thuckiness and making this up that Jesus died, why would they make it up that a member of the Sanhedrin who killed him, they used his tomb? It makes no sense because that person could go, no, 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 no. He has my tomb. It is Here's my tomb, here is still Jesus. But rather they go and say that. That just makes no sense to make that up. The second one is they appear to Mary Magdalene and a bunch of women. Mary Magdalene, first appearance that Christ makes was to a group of women that were going to do his body with ointment and a bunch of things. Mary Magdalene was also a demon-possessed woman. If the disciples again were making this up, they would have never chosen to decide that a group of women would be the first witnesses. Women 2,000 years ago in ancient Israel, church had no uh, sway in anything, never mind reliable witnesses. People would have dismissed their case and gone, you're all mad, you don't know what you're talking about. And one of them was a demon, previously a demon-possessed woman. If the disciples again were making that up, Surely that makes no, no sense that they would decide that women would be the first encounters with this risen Jesus. 
Also, there's no uh, credibility if he was still in the tomb. If he was still in the tomb, they would easily be able to go and uh, go to the tomb and go, here's your leader, still very dead. Here's your Messiah, movement ended. But the Sanhedrin and the, and the political guys that were against it could never do that. They could never fight against it because he was empty. Now, some people would say his body was stolen. Now, that is just a, a crazy idea that the, this, this tomb was guarded by two Roman soldiers who, if they lost this body, would have died as a result of it. So here was these fishermen, um, tax collectors, who were so scared three days ago, ago that when Jesus was arrested, they fled. Now the body was stolen, that they were able to go and fight two trained Roman soldiers who would have fought to the death. But yet they beat them and took the, and took the body. <laughs> it's, again... Highly unlikely that they decided to run away because they would have died. So they would have fought to the death. But there was, they were still alive, the Romans. So it just, that does not make any sense. And lastly, our last point, is the people had experiences that convinced them that Jesus was Lord. They encountered him and said, man, this is the same Jesus that is alive. We saw him die, and here he is alive. This we see, firstly, his disciples who were now cowards, running away, standing, to, Peter denies, he's so scared of a slave girl, who again, who had no say, would deny to her, now becomes the head of a church, who becomes a, an apostle that would die for their faith. Every single one of the 12 apostles dies besides for one. They would die for their faith, that they believed this resurrected Jesus was God. They would die for it. They would not deny it. One of them would die in prison and not be murdered. He's John. We also see that Jesus' family members come to know Christ. This is, there's a, uh, one of the guys that writes a book in the book of the Bible, James. James is a half-brother of Jesus. Um, he was a skeptic the whole way through Jesus' ministry. He thought his brother was a lunatic like a poached egg. And uh, he genuine, I mean, you can understand if you've got siblings and your sibling was claiming to be God, you can kind of understand a very similar, this guy's mad. And he, all the way to the death of Christ, thought his brother was a loony. What changes you? What convinces you that your sibling is really God was the fact that he met him resurrected. Man, my brother is actually God. Takes a lot to do that. Resurrection can do it to you. And lastly, we see that Paul, an outright man who attacked the church, ravaged the church, killed Christians, threw them into prison, ravagedly his destiny, his, he felt it, a zeal to attack and end this church movement, meets with Christ on a resurrected road. I mean, on the Damascus road, meets the resurrected Christ to a point that he then becomes an apostle for the church who writes more books than anyone else claiming that Christ is real, who goes back to the same synagogues where he stood in before and saying Christ is not God, now saying he was. He would go around all the world, be shipwrecked, beaten, lashed, just absolutely stoned to the point that they thought he was dead for the fact that he believed that this Jesus was real, the Son of God. Church, we... 
have to understand that this Jesus is alive. He is real and alive. And so we have to come to a conclusion. If you're a non-Christian this morning, man, you have to eventually come to a point that you believe, as C.S. Lewis said, he either is the Son of God and who he said he was, or he is a madman and a lunatic. On top of that, for those of you who for those of you who aren't Christian, so you need to come to that point. And if you believe, man, that this Jesus could be God, he's there. In Romans 10 verses 9, it says, if you believe in, your, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. And so this is a simply believing in Jesus that you will come to this conclusion. You will come to a place where you are saved, where you get to know him. Enjoy him. Jesus did not come and die just to save you from hell, but rather that you might experience the richness of God. Man, he did save you from hell. We'll speak that in, in the last week. We'll talk about heaven and hell. But he's come so that you might experience the fullness of life. If he's the creator of this world and this world entertains you, imagine what the creator would. All you have to do is believe him. You don't have to sort yourself out. Jesus didn't die for half the curse. Didn't die for half your sin. He died for all of your sin. You come as you are. And if you come as you are, you will be saved. But I also want to speak to you, those of you who are Christian this morning. If this is real, church, if this is our Savior, man, what kind of devotion is required if we speak in week one and we talk about the, how this universe came into existence by this being, and this being is this Jesus who is the sovereign ruler of this world. He is uh, this man who, who loves us, who rules and deserves to be worshipped and praised. How much more do we need to give every aspect of our lives? And so often in the church around this world, we find that there are Christians that give hard-heartedness towards this thing. Ah, come to church now and again. But if this is the Savior of the world, man, there's this devotion that needs to come. A pursuit of Him, seeking Him, going after Him with everything that we have. We see with the disciples, they are so convinced that this Jesus is real, that they would lay down their lives. They are so burdened by the fact that this Jesus rose again from the dead that they would be willing to go out to all nations to tell them about, um, about this Jesus. Because they are burdened by the call of Christ to come with everything that you have and follow him. It's, it's that what it is. It's a full dedication to Christ. Pursuing him. I'm not asking you to pack up your bags and go to Madagascar tomorrow. But I'm asking you, take this seriously. Man, this is truth. Then it requires full devotion. Because if, it's, it's, if it is truth, it can only require that. Can't require anything else. How burdened are you that this is real? Because we want to let the world know. We want to shout it from the rooftops. We want to tell them that this Christ is real. He is alive he is sovereign and he deserves to be worshipped. And he's coming again as that king who's going to establish a rule. Man, we have to get ready for that. We have to tell the world about that. Let's commit to that. Let us pray. 
Father, we are grateful about the fact that we are able to come to you and be able to just spend some time in your presence because of what your son Jesus did for us. And so, Lord, I pray for, for those this morning that, um, that know you. I pray, Lord, that there would be the stirring in their hearts for full devotion towards Christ. That they would give everything towards this Jesus. That they would pursue you with their, their work, that that would be an offering to you. In their play, that that would be an offering to you. Because you, Lord, deserve every aspect of who we are. May there be at the Ridge Church this, this stirring up amongst us of devotion towards Christ. To live our lives for him. Would you give us a boldness like you gave the disciples, Lord? Would you fill us with your spirits so that we might be able to be bold, to share our faith with others, to tell them about this Jesus, that this Jesus is God. And he's alive. I pray for those that don't know you here this morning, Lord. I pray that there would be a stirring in their hearts. That, Lord, you would open up their eyes and that they would see you clearly. And they would know that this Jesus is real and true. And that they would have nothing else but devotion for you. To come and lay their lives at your feet. I pray that you do a work there. By the power of your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.